Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WG. We are locked. We are loaded here. Legal Face Off final episode of February. Oh I'm tired just thinking about the yeah. show. <laughs> there are so many people, so many topics. Seven weeks worth of shows in one. Breaking news about to happen. Rich Lankoff, Tina Martini, Sam Panionovich, Ben Anderson. We will get to uh, Roger Stone. We have breaking news on that. We'll talk William Barr. Will he resign? Yes or no? Opportunities for women before the Supreme Court. The Astros are still cheating and nobody likes them. And of course, the uh, elephant in the room, Rob Blagojevich. He's That's home. Right. And mm-hmm. you were on the scene yesterday. I was. Legal I was right off. there outside his house. More on that later. So joining us to lead things off here, Len Goodman, who's been on the show multiple times, LenGoodmanLawOffice.com, and of course the attorney for Rod Blagojevich, former Illinois governor, who is out of federal prison after President Trump commuted his sentence earlier this week. Len, welcome back to the show. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks so much. We, you know, we've all, of course, read all the stories and, and seen uh, Rod all over the media. Give us you know, some insight to our listeners, something we haven't heard before about sort of how this all went down, how much notice uh, you all had, to the extent that you could tell us, you know, bring us sort of inside those discussions and what was it like for you and Rod um, to hear that he was finally being uh, released from prison? Yeah. Well, first of all, zero notice. Um, Patty got a call from uh, President Trump and called me at the office, and that was the first I heard of it. So um, it was total surprise. Wow. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that makes it a, a little hard. I was just talking to Rod, actually, today, and he's like, I can't sleep, and, you know, he's having trouble adjusting. And I'm like, well, Rod, you know, this happened very suddenly. And, you know, you didn't. it's not like you had three months to prepare. You know, it's like, you know, pack your stuff up, and, you know, you're going home. So I think... Uh, you know, it's, I think we're, I'm very grateful. You know, I have to say just walking into that house yesterday morning and seeing Rod coming down the stairs with his two daughters and, you know, yelling at Patty, where's my socks? You know, um, it's just, you know, it's a very unusual family to, um, be able to, to stay together during eight years of, you know, absence of, of the, the husband and you know so it's uh it for me it's been been very heartwarming to see by the way it's not it's not co- together it's not every family that does stay together i mean there are plenty of families who have people in jail fathers daughters sons husbands for even less time than 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 blagojevich spends and, and break up so it is i think to your point fairly remarkable that yesterday when we all saw them together it seemed like you know, he had never gone away. Uh, they, they were, yeah. they were, you know, seemingly incredibly close still. Yeah, I mean, it's going to be take some adjustment. I mean, his his sixteen year old daughter was just a little kid when he went away, and you know, um, it's going to take some time. But I really think a lot of the credit goes to Patty. I mean, she is, she really has um, kept it all together and kept them in their house which, you know, financially wasn't that easy, um, you know, um, in Ravenswood. So, um, you know, I, I, I do have a lot of respect for, for Patty, and, you know, I, I have a lot of affection for Rod and the whole family. In fact, his daughter, Annie, has been my daughter's babysitter. Um, so, you know, it's, it, 
they really are. I, I just can't stress that enough that they really are um, remarkable people. I know Rod rubs people the wrong way sometimes. He's got a big mouth. He does trouble controlling it, but this is probably part of the reason why he got in trouble. But, um, you know, it's, a, it's the one thing I can add is that I, I really think he has a heart of gold and they're, they're really special people. So it sounds like um, they have almost in some ways picked up where they left off eight years ago. Um, it sounds like Rod's got a little bit of insomnia, but other than that, it sounds like in some ways the family unit has come back together pretty quickly. Um, what is different, though? What is different for Rod? What's different for the family? Anything noticeable over the last couple of days since he he's come wow. back home? And shaving, for sure, yes. has been difficult, as we <laughs> yes. saw yesterday. We know there's a, there, there was a little bit of a blood fest <laughs> yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, it's like it had an actual sharp razor blade the first time in eight years. So, um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not, I can't speak to that. I'm not in the home with them. Um, but, you know, I did talk to Rod today for, you know, like an hour, and um, he does sound like the same person. But it's, you know, it's going to take some time. And, and the advice that I gave to Rod, I don't know if he's going to listen to me, is, you know, shut the phone off for a while. You know, close the drapes, play Monopoly with your family and, you know, get to get to know each other again, because, um, you know, it's hard. Obviously, I've had other clients come home after time in prison. You know, I've had clients come home that there were no cell phones when they went away. And now there are, you know, and Rod was just telling me, you know, Patty bought him a cell phone and he's trying to learn how to use it. You know, it's a smartphone now. Um, So it's, uh, you know, it, it is hard. And, you know, obviously, I'm not the best person to answer all those questions. I'm not in the home with them. But, but um, you know, I, th- I, think, I think no matter how it appears on the outside, there's going to be a period of adjustment. Now, what's your take on Rod's uh, feelings about how the public has reacted to his release? Certainly, I was there yesterday, certainly... You know, the people on the ground yesterday was were overwhelmingly supportive of him. But, you know, I'm sure yeah. he's looking at all the reports and reading social media and look, you know, reading the newspaper. And, you know, there has been a considerable amount of people who have been very critical of him still and feel that he should not have been released. Um, you know, what's his reaction to that? I'm, I'm sure even though your advice to him is maybe don't look at that, I'm sure by nature he is looking at all that. So what's his take on how yeah. he's been perceived by the public? Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, my personal feeling is that, you know, I, I have a lot of disappointment in, you know, a lot of even politicians that for years have been telling me, you know, the sentence is ridiculous. He needs to be home with his family. But then as soon as Trump started talking about uh, how he thought it was ridiculous and he wanted to commute his sentence, um, now these people are no longer for it. So I do think there's a lot of hypocrisy there, and um, which there's just a lot of people that if Trump's for it, they have to be against it. And I have very little respect for those type of people. I think, you know, especially leaders, they should lead, you know, and if Trump does something good, um, if he's looking at people that are doing excessive time in federal prison and he's going to let some of them out, 
Um, I think he should be applauded for that. And I think people should work with them to try to identify uh, people that need to come home besides Rob, because there's plenty of people in federal prison um, that are serving excessive sentences uh, that need to come home. And I know that's something that Rod has talked about, that he would like to be involved in that effort. Um, Len, what does the future hold for uh, a post uh release Rod Blagojevich. Are we going to see a book? Are we going to see him hosting a talk show? Will we see him on the airwaves, all of the above, after he's done your, playing Monopoly with the family? Good as mine. What are we going to see? Like I say, this is, this is so new. Um, it's not, like I say, it's not like he's had, you know, his outdate was 2024 or 2025. So um, all of a sudden he's home. He's going to have to get, get his feet back on the ground. Uh, he's got to earn a living. You know, these, these, are, these are not wealthy people, no matter, you know, I was looking at the New York Times today and they lump them in with all these other, you know, people with all these big connections. But that's not Rod, um, you know, um, so I don't know what he's going to do. I know he does care a lot about um, criminal justice reform and it's something he wants to get involved in. And I know he feels like it's in his blood to do public service. I, obviously, he's not going to run for elected office, but um you know, I think he wants to contribute in some way. Uh, what that'll be, I don't know. You know so your guess is as good as mine. That's Len Goodman, LenGoodmanLawOffice.com, criminal defense attorney here in Chicago, and, of course, the attorney for Rod Blagojevich. Len, thanks again for taking the time. Okay, thanks, guys. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. And the news continues to churn here on Legal Face Off. Did we just hear something about Roger Stone? Breaking Rich? news, yeah, oh, absolutely. Breaking news to join us and talk more about some of these things. William Barr and Roger Stone, CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig, former federal and state prosecutor as well. Ellie, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me back. Appreciate it. Lucky to have him. He's all over. I, I watched you on CNN like an hour ago, so I know you're all over the place. But uh, before <laughs> we get to Stone, um, you're one of the former or 2000 former Justice Department officials. From, it should be noted from both Republican and Democrat administrations that signed a letter published on Sunday calling on AG William Barr to resign. Tell us why you signed that. 
Yeah, so look, first of all, I don't sign a letter like this lightly. I'm not really a big open letter type guy, but I feel very strongly about this. Um, and, and understand, the Roger Stone incident that's gone down over the last couple of weeks has really just been the tipping point. What Bill Barr did there, I think, is outrageous, to undermine his own prosecutors, to intervene in a case that directly to the benefit of one of Donald Trump's political allies is, I think, outrageous. But it's more than that. Bill Barr has been attorney general for a little over a full year now. He was actually confirmed in mid-February of 2019. And, and look at what he's done. I mean, the pattern is consistent. He distorted Robert Mueller's findings in a way that not just benefited, but might have saved Donald Trump. He tried to prevent the whistleblower's complaint on Ukraine from going to Congress, even though the law says it must go to Congress. And it did over his flimsy legal objection. He refused to even open a criminal investigation of anything to do with Ukraine. Forget about the president, but of Rudy Giuliani or any of the other people involved, which to me shows a real lack of prosecutorial chops. And then he intervened on out of the 60,000 cases that the Justice Department handles every year. What two cases did Bill Barr personally come in and undermine his own prosecutors, Roger Stone and Michael Flynn? What do those two people have in common? Both prosecuted by Robert Mueller both worked for Donald Trump in the campaign and in Flynn's case in the administration itself. So I think Barr has really done a lot of damage to his own credibility and independence, and to the credibility and independence of DOJ. So, Ali, what do you think of Judge Amy Berman Jackson's sentence of Roger Stone and what message do you think it sends? Yeah, so first of all, if I can maybe brag a little bit, I did predict in writing on Twitter that, that the sentence would be four years. Pretty close, three years. Three years and four years months, and four months <laughs> right? Pretty close. Yeah, I think, I mean, come on, that's, that's, that's at least like a two-pointer. <laughs> that's pretty good. That's pretty good. Um, but Judge Jackson really was incredibly impressive today in, in her moral clarity, her legal clarity, and the message she sent. I mean, first of all, this is a stern sentence. I mean, we throw around these numbers, seven years, nine years, three years and four months in jail is a long time, especially for somebody of Roger Stone's age. I think he's 67 years old, especially when you're talking about a nonviolent crime and a crime that does not involve theft of money, like a Bernie Madoff type thing. Um, this is a very serious sentence. It's, it's lower than the guidelines range, but that was very much foreseeable. That's how, that's what led me to predict four years. It's just rare to see a judge give a guide. The guidelines tend to be pretty harsh, and it's rare to see a judge give a guideline sentence in a case like this for a first-time offender. But the things that Judge Jackson said that I think were so important is that, A, this was a righteous case. This is a legitimate, not just legitimate, but important investigation. And B, she said, she, she made clear, Roger Stone is not being persecuted here because of his political beliefs. He got convicted because he lied to cover up for Donald Trump, and that's accurate, and it's important that we keep that in perspective. So, Ellie, speaking of Trump, of course, uh, he has already come out and said that Roger Stone has a very good chance of exoneration. He said that just hours after the sentence. What are your thoughts on that? And also your thoughts on Trump's actions earlier this week, commuting uh, and pardoning several people. We covered Blagojevich already. But what are your thoughts on this action by the president? And what do you think he'll do with uh, Stone? And also, what about Julian Assange? There was news yesterday from his lawyers that Trump may uh, pardon him. So a lot of pardoning and exonerations and commutations going on. Yeah, uh, I, I disagree that there's a, uh, much of a chance that Roger Stone ever gets exonerated. There's only two ways Roger Stone can really get exonerated. One, if the judge throws out the trial because of this issue with the allegedly biased juror, which is based on the public record, has no merit. That thing is going nowhere. Uh, and, and B, if the Court of Appeals overturns the case. Now, here's what I think 
Trump may be angling to do. And he, by the he way, he saying, used the word exoneration. Understanding he probably right. doesn't know what that means, but that was his term. Right. Well, first of all, pardon is not an exoneration. Right. Exoneration right. means some court has declared that uh, you were wrongly charged. But I think what he's trying to do here is buy time because he obviously, I think, wants to pardon Roger Stone, but he also, I think, has been advised it's not wise to do this before the election in November. And now he can say, well, I want to give the Court of Appeals its chance to hear the case and decide. And conveniently, that usually takes six to 12 months. And so if you allow that process to play out, then either A, the Court of Appeals overturns the case, which is highly, highly unlikely, given my experience. I've argued plenty of cases in Courts of Appeals. Or B, if the Court of Appeals says, no, this, this conviction is legit, we're letting it stand then the president can issue the pardon, but by then we're after the election. So I think that's his play here. Regarding the, the spate of pardons earlier this week to Rod Blagojevich, or, you know, Illinois guy, right? I, I, don't know, I don't know how he's regarded there uh, in, in Chicagoland. He's but regarded very, sil- very silver is how he's regarded. His, <laughs> his hair is now very silver, as you saw. <laughs> yeah, he has, he has the same hair, though, but other than the color. Yes. Um, but Rod, Rod Blagojevich, Michael Milken... Bernard Carrick, I mean, these are these are paragons of corruption. And look, the president absolutely has very broad constitutional power to pardon. There's nothing illegal about those pardons. But also, the, here's the deal. If you pardon someone, you own it. It's like you break it, you buy it. And Bill Clinton pardoned Mark Rich, and that was a disgrace. And that it will forever be part of the historical record. And I think the same will fairly be said of Donald Trump here, a, a guy who tried to pass himself off as some sort of anti-corruption crusader. That was part of his impeachment defense. Uh, that's why he was in Ukraine, allegedly, because he cared about corruption, is now handing out pardons to, to, to paragons of corruption left and right. That's Ellie Honig, CNN legal analyst. Ellie, we know you're busy. Thanks for making some time for us, and we'll do it again soon. Anytime. Thanks very much. The Blagojevich conversation rolls on. I still, well, before we get to the grab bag, I want to hear about you staking out Blago at his house. I was there, Which, yeah. It was, <laughs> it was like legal face-off was on the scene. Hey, yeah, we go everywhere, news. we cover everything. Facebook Even from live. a gondola in Colorado. It was, it was very <laughs> impressive, so we have to touch on that later. But joining us now in the studio, Stephen Block, partner at Thompson High, and a former federal and Cook County prosecutor in studio. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So Blago yesterday called himself a freed political prisoner and vowed to reform a broken justice system, as he called it, outside his house there in Ravenswood Manor. Um, did he learn anything in prison? Uh, apparently, nothing at all. Um, I-, I was just talking to a colleague about this before I came over here, who just came back from South Africa on a, on a two-week trip. And I Where said, they have real political prisoners. And, and, and that was that was the point. The yeah. idea that uh, Blagojevich is comparing himself to someone like Nelson Mandela, um, it, it's really, it's astounding, but I think wholly unsurprising. Yeah, I don't remember Nelson Mandela saying, I've got this thing and it's effing golden. <laughs> I don't recall that either. But honestly, I mean, you know, you would think that spending eight years in a federal prison would lure, would, would teach him some lessons about, you know, what to do. And obviously he had a lot of time to self-reflect. And I understand his first, you know, opportunity to speak to the media. He's trying to prove a point. But at some point you would think that he will convey the sense of, at the very least, I spoke inappropriately. I, you know, maybe cohorted with some people that I shouldn't have. Apparently, the, at first glance, he's not he's not saying anything like that. It, re- it really doesn't seem it. And I, I think that it, it's, in my experience, it's, it's unusual. Um, I prosecuted hundreds of people for all sorts of crimes. Some people um, plead guilty right away. Some take it to trial like Bogoyevich did. Um, 
Even those that take the case to trial after serving some years in prison, I'd say many of them, uh, as you say, they're able to acknowledge something through self-reflection. They're able to acknowledge they made some poor choices even if they don't want to get into the details of what they did. And I think what's amazing here is uh, it's really quite the opposite. He's doubling down. So he had a 14-year sentence. He was in jail for eight years. A lot has happened over the past eight years in terms of continued examples of corruption in Chicago and Illinois. Recently, ex-state Senator Martin Sandoval pled guilty to pocketing a quarter million dollars in bribes to protect the red light camera industry. Um, Our our longest sitting alderman, Ed Burke, he's set to go to trial in early 2021 on federal racketeering charges. So, I mean, I think all of us are wondering, did this 14-year sentence have any deterrent effect at all on anybody? Well, I mean, I guess we'll never know the answer to that question because we only know the cases that ended up uh, being charged that the government uh, found. We don't know if anyone was deterred or not. That being said, looking at uh, the scandals that are in the news every day, um, it certainly does not appear that this sentence sent a strong deterrent message. And it it may be that in public corruption cases like this, that uh, what we as a former prosecutor, we call general deterrence, the ability to deter others. Um, Maybe it's just simply not effective. Um, Maybe that is uh, just not something judges should consider when imposing a sentence because it truly, there's no evidence that it does deter uh, others from committing similar crimes. Yeah. I mean, to that point, you know, I'm sure you've seen the reports calling Illinois, you know, the third most corrupt state in America. That report just came out, I think this week behind DC and, and Louisiana and Chicago is, the most corrupt city, according to these studies, you know, you could point to tangible reasons, right? There's some legislation that is has been stalled for years. Uh, for example, the cooling off period that elected officials should undergo before becoming lobbyists. Uh, I think Illinois is one of only 14 states that has nothing like that. Literally the day after you leave office in our state, you could start lobbying your former colleagues. What are some other reasons you think, you know, Illinois is just a hotbed of political corruption and to Tina's point continues to happen every day? Like, don't these people realize that guys like you, you're, you know, you and your former position are listening and are just desperate to catch them? Like, what's the story? You would think that people uh, d- would get the message and that doesn't seem to be the case. Um I think, unfortunately, what we have here is it is is a culture. It is a uh, culture that goes back many, many decades, and culture is a tough thing to change. Um, I know the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Chicago and the FBI are, are doing their best to try to root out corruption, and they're certainly bringing some very interesting cases. Um, but it is, it's a really big ship to turn. Um, I think that there are some things that can be done. You've pointed to some of them. Uh, when you have legislators who can have uh, really full-time jobs where there are direct conflicts with the matters over which they have responsibility. It's a system that is simply just set up for abuse. So certainly there are things that can be done. You alluded to to one of them right there um, to hopefully make this uh, a little better. Before we let you go, we have to talk about uh, another story that we covered just last week in the wake of Dan Webb announcing, um, you know, a further indictment of Jussie Smollett. You used to work for Kim Fox here in Cook County. What's your take on Justice Millett and specifically why this seemingly random story that shouldn't really, if handled a certain way, have received such attention is still going on a year later and, you know, the case isn't over. Dan Webb is still looking at, 
you know, whether there's other improprieties going on. So why do you think that story has uh, struck such a nerve? I think the Smollett story has really struck a nerve with a lot of people and people who don't even follow necessarily law or politics or even people here in Chicago or Cook County. And the reason is, I think the same reason why the Blagojevich commutation has struck a nerve. And that is the appearance that Someone who is wealthy, powerful, connected, got special treatment. Someone who did not own up to what they did and seems to be unwilling to uh, make any amends. And the idea there's a lack of transparency. I think that those things struck a nerve in the Smollett case, just like Bogoyevich, and I don't see it going away anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, when our governor um, was the subject of a probe or is the subject of a probe that revealed that he removed five toilets from his house to receive some tax credits. It just doesn't seem to be going away. But yeah, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressured. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all of your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. You can like us on Facebook, you can follow us on Twitter, and always rate, review, listen to the show. It's Legal Faceoff with Rich and Tina. Joining us now, we go out to California, a man who Rich knows pretty well, Ben Mysilis, an attorney at Garrigus and Garrigus, to talk about the Houston Astros cheating scandal. Ben, welcome in. Thanks for having me. So really fascinating take on this. Your client, uh, Ben, is Mike Bolsinger, who's a former Toronto Blue Jay. Um, and you and he filed suit accusing the Astros of unfair business practices negligent and intentional interference with contractual and economic relations. Uh, You're asking the Astros to both pay you damages and forfeit $31 million in bonuses from their 2017 World Series title, of course, in the wake of the cheating scandal that is now dominating Major League Baseball news. So I guess our question is, one of the questions is, from a legal perspective, again, our title is Legal Faceoff, so we like to approach this uh, from a legal perspective. How do you prove causation, right? So how will you prove to a jury the nexus between the Astros banging on drums and your client's performance this one time against the Astros, especially considering he had a career ERA of 4.92 in his 48 Major League Baseball appearances? Well, the nexus is pretty easy because he was terminated that specific game. And for someone like Mike Bolsinger, who's a journeyman pitcher, um, each game matters. Each game is like an audition. Um, And on that specific game, we were able to identify the specific bangs. 12 of the 29 pitches, there were bangs, or 40% of the pitches. Mike's an off-speed pitcher, um, relies on his deception. We know for a fact when the cheating took place, and we know very specifically he was terminated as a result of his performance, you know, that specific game. I mean, literally the the next day, right? Yeah, literally right after the inning. I mean, they basically demoted him. Um, So the issue is really, to me, legally, right, less about causation and more about damages, right? I, I think your argument could be fair to say, do you pay this guy millions and millions of dollars 
for you know future career damages because he was going to be playing X number of years, and you say, hey, he wasn't going to be that great, you know, in the future because look at past performance. I think that's a fair debate, and we could have experts debate it. But in terms of causation, it would be like you or me showing up to the office. We're average employees, but something horrible happens that day. We're fired because of what happens that day, and it turns out what was horrible was that our competitor actually hacked into our emails and gave our boss you know incorrect information about us that led to our termination. We wouldn't say under that fact scenario, wow, what's the causal nexus there? I mean, obviously, there is a causal nexus, but I will concede your point that there will be different damage theories that will come in. So, Ben, why is the punishment imposed by the Major League Baseball commissioner, which has included monetary fines and ultimately costs three major league managers their jobs insufficient? And why should this case be decided in the courts rather than within the league? Well, to me, to answer it from the, 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 the second perspective, it's, it's a business theft. Um, you know, if I were to give an oral argument and my opposing counsel hacked into my emails and knew how to, you know, basically respond to each and every one of my points, we wouldn't just say, yeah, let the state bar deal with it. I mean, it's akin to a business theft. So, you know, I think internally the league should, in fact, you know, deal with it, you know, more robustly than they had. But also legally, it's a business theft. It's, it's essentially stealing of trade secrets and interfering with someone's ability to perform well. Ben Hall. And I think the league has, yeah, and I was going to say, I think the league responded, you know, absolutely horribly. I mean, the $5 million fine the Astros will make back on beer sales, you know, in the opening day. They get to keep the World Series trophy. There's absolutely zero discipline amongst the players, and they get to keep $31 million in postseason bonuses. Their annualized increase in valuation of the team from the World Series to the next year was 18% or $300 million. So if you're telling me you get a $5 million penalty where your fraud generates $350 million, you know, in, in value, you're going to have a lot of people committing that fraud over and over again if the $350 million theft results in a $5 million penalty. So I just think the punishment comes nowhere in beating the crime. You said horrible. I'd give the commissioner an F on what he's done with this. And, and Mike Trout comes on. Mike Trout never says anything about anybody, and he's bashing the commissioner. I mean, the commissioner's stance can't help your case, can it? You know, it... it, it well, I think the opposite is true. That, just bad, but I think... I think this couldn't I mean the reactions by Major League Baseball and by the Astros owner could not serve your case better right I mean this is in the news every single day and Jim Crane you know the other day at spring training saying on the one hand it had no impact on games and then saying oh well, maybe it had an impact that was a debacle in terms of PR to Sam's point you know Manfred calling the commissioner's trophy which has his name on it by the way a piece of metal um, I mean, that's just it couldn't go better for your cause of action because people hate the way Major League Baseball and the Astros are treating the scandal. And I think Mike should get some credit for it. I mean, Mike's, you know, op-ed in the Washington Post, his complaint, you know, standing for the, you know, for, for the integrity of the way he does, you know, encouraging other players to come forward, you know, as they did. And a lot of them cite Mike for, for his courage is a major part of that because you compare and contrast that to what the league is doing, you know, and yeah, I, I say horrible. I, I give it an F. Um, it's just a complete tone deafness, and it's like they think they're living in, you know, a different a, a different era, like the 1990s or the 80s, where you could just do a press release and get away with it. Like, there's a different level of scrutiny, a different level of journalism, a different level of fan base, 
demands of truth and transparency and where you're struggling to keep millennials, you know, treating people so stupid like this is the worst thing you can do when Manfred every day is just treating the public and the fan bases across the country as idiots and seems that his main goal here is to protect the Astros, which, you know, raises the question, like, what else is going on here? And was there some sort of collusive deal that happened behind the scenes? And is there way more to the story? And each and every day, more and more and more comes out. Yeah, Ben, we got about one minute, but really quickly, why do you think this scandal, you you cover a lot of high-profile sports and entertainment cases, you represent a lot of high-profile people. Why do you think this particular scandal in baseball has touched such a nerve um, to the point where you know, people are calling on Major League Baseball to vacate the title? We've seen plenty of scandals in baseball, you know, be it steroids or, or cork bats or whatever, um, and in other sports. Why do you think this one is, you know, touching such a nerve? Because they're cheaters. They won and they were so arrogant in their winning and cheating. And so it's like the perfect ingredients for, for, for that together. And so when you expose the arrogant you know, winner as the ultimate cheater, you know, and, and then they seemingly can get away with it, there's nothing more that pisses off the public today than, than that fact scenario. And we see that in baseball and other areas of, of business and life. That's Ben Mysolis, attorney at Garrigus and Garrigus out in California. Appreciate the time, Ben. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women's of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Last but certainly not least, on a very jam-packed legal face-off today, Rich Lenkoff, Tina Martini. My name is Sam Paniadovich, currently a partner at Kirkland & Ellis and the former Attorney General of the state of Illinois. It's an honor to have Lisa Madigan on the program. Lisa, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, Lisa, you've had an illustrious career as a private practice trial lawyer and as Illinois' 31st Attorney General. And back in 2004, you you became the first Illinois Attorney General in more than 25 years to personally and successfully argue a case before the Supreme Court. Arguing before the high court is obviously a coveted experience for many lawyers. Just to provide some context, what percentage of cases typically make it to the Supreme Court and what types of cases do they tend to be? Well, very few cases tend to make it to the Supreme Court. I think the numbers look something like this. About 7,000 cases are brought to the Supreme Court, and they only hear approximately 70 of them. So very, very few cases make it to argument. 
And those cases, it's a wide range. Obviously, there are criminal matters and civil matters. But from the perspective of a former attorney general, you really have states being institutional um, litigants in front of the Supreme Court because of the nature of their jobs. As lawyers for the state, there are always issues, again, both of a criminal and civil nature that come up that end up in front of the Supreme Court. When I argued, the case was a Fourth Amendment case, and it revolved around whether or not law enforcement has the right to walk a drug detection dog around your car when you are pulled over for a traffic violation. Lisa, you recently appeared on a very interesting panel on this issue, specifically tips for women who want to argue at the Supreme Court. And I note that many of your fellow panelists are former guests on Legal Faceoff, including Anita Alvarez, who is the former Cook County State's Attorney, and Carolyn Shapiro, who is a regular on our show, uh, of course, um, uh, former Solicitor General of Illinois and Supreme Court expert. So what are some of the reasons why women tend to appear less frequently before the high court um, than male counterparts? And what steps do you think women can take to change that dynamic? Well, we had a panel of seven women from the Chicago area who have argued in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And when we looked at, you know, where they were in terms of their careers when they argued, four of us had been in government, and you mentioned Anita Alvarez, the former Cook County State's Attorney, as well as Carolyn Shapiro, one of my former solicitors. Um, Obviously, the three of us were all in government. Uh, We also had Jill Weinbanks on that panel. She's also a former Illinois Solicitor General. But there were two women who had been in private practice the time they argued, and there was one law professor, uh, so she argued actually very recently you know, on a pro bono uh, criminal matter. So you really can come from any arena, but when you look at the numbers, there are a lot of women who get these opportunities when they're in government, and that is an issue that we spend a lot of time talking about. But one of the other things we talked about is the fact that if you want to argue in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, when those very few opportunities do come up, you really have to fight for them and you have to advocate for yourself because, as you know, it really is a highlight uh, of a lawyer's career to have that opportunity and everybody wants it. And people will, you know, fight for it. They'll knock you over. (laughs) So you have to be willing to get out there and say, look, uh, you know, I've dealt with this case from the very beginning. I'm the best person to argue, and uh, the case deserves to be mine. So you really have to make sure that you're going to stand up for yourself because there are plenty of other people who would love that opportunity. So when you get the case, you you stand up, you say, I'm entitled to this, and you actually get the opportunity. How did you prepare for the case that you argued? What what kind of preparation goes into it, both from a substantive standpoint as well as, you know, just life preparation for for your family and so forth? Well, at the time, I was eight months pregnant, so I didn't have any kids running around the house, which was very helpful, uh, but I spent a lot of time at the office and at home reading cases as if you know I was back in law school preparing for a moot court, and then we did three moot courts, one at the office, and so you can imagine how the you know lawyers in the appellate division were very excited to be able to moot the attorney general, <laughs> and then, uh, we did one with the National Association of Attorneys General out in D.C., and we did one with a a group of um, 
former, a lot of them were former clerks uh, on the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, so we did another one with a group of private practice attorneys. And so, you know, you make sure to prepare yourself uh, in terms of the substance. But I would say one of the most interesting things I did was to spend a lot of time with the Illinois State Police at their training facility outside of Springfield, learning about how they train and how they use uh, drug detection dogs. Because I, of course, didn't want to be in the position where I got asked a question about the history and the use of drug detection dogs and didn't know the answer. So, you know, it's not just knowing your cases and thinking through your answers, but it's also making sure that you have a broad base of knowledge around the subject area because you never know what type of a question you're going to get. Lisa, last question here on Legal Faceoff. Do you think some of the strides that females have made in the legal profession, we just talked about Judge Amy Berman Jackson, who uh, rendered the sentence in the Roger Stone case today. Of course, in the Supreme Court, you've got the likes of Elena Kagan and Sonia Sotomayor and, of course, the notorious RBG, who we all love. Do you think that the presence of prominent females in those roles makes it now easier for women like yourself who want to argue before the Supreme Court? I think there's no question that that really helps. And it also helps that there are so many women who are clerks uh, for the justices on the Supreme Court, because many of those women end up going into private practice. I have a partner here at Kirkland & Ellis, Erin Murphy, uh, who was a clerk for the Chief Justice. She's now argued four times in front of the U.S. Supreme Court. And so that's a pipeline that you see a lot of. And I think we're going to see more of it because there are more and more women who have you know, come through law school and are getting those high-profile clerkships. And they're going to be prepared to advocate for themselves and for their clients in front of the Supreme Court. She is a partner at Kirkland and & Ellis and the first female attorney general in the state of Illinois, Lisa Madigan. Thank you so much for your time here today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. It is time for the Legal Grab Bag here on Legal Faceoff, WGN Radio. Thanks to Ben Anderson. And great job, by the way, by Emily Flores from Bryce, Donnie, and Lenkoff. What a big show. Today. Big show by our booker. Very big show. Can you quickly, before we bring in our guest here, can you tell the story about how you uh, hounded Blago at his house, please? I mean, they announced <laughs> a press conference at 11 a.m. I live not far from uh, Ravenswood Manor, although I didn't know what Ravenswood Manor was before yesterday. <laughs> and uh, yeah, went up there as your roving reporter for Legal Faceoff. And I camped out right under his steps. I mean, I was right there when he came out. Uh, I will tell you that there were a lot of interesting Chicago characters. Why, mil- was, Ronnie, about. why was Ronnie Woo Woo yeah, there? Our, our Dub Dub was there. I mean, it's sort of it's one of the signs of the apocalypse to have Ronnie Woo Woo and Blagojevich in the same you know frame. But yeah, he was there. Uh, a lot of locals from the neighborhood. Uh, a lot of protesters, but most people were uh, in support of in support of Blago there. So. Yeah, it was good. It was good to be there. Tina and I were very happy with the coverage. Hey, man. Very happy. Yes. Joining us Our in the coverage studio, knows no bounds. For the grab Mario Kashar from Kashara Law. Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And from WGN Sports and the publicist for Zany's Comedy Club, Rick Geezer. How are you, Rick? Why am I here? <laughs> he was so nervous. He's been chasing you forever. He Finally. Called, he called me yesterday and said, what are we going to talk about? <laughs> Don't worry about it. Don't worry. Don't worry about it. Topic number one, we get to usually about six or seven. Uh, First topic today is the Weinstein trial. Yeah, so today is the third day of jury deliberations in the Weinstein trial. Uh, A lot of us are watching this pretty closely. Apparently, the jury is moving pretty carefully and deliberately through the evidence. I've 
I've read that there are a number of notes that have been passed to the judge and questions raised by the jury. What's interesting is that the defense team had motioned for one of the jurors who was a white female to be removed on the basis that uh, she read a book about child abuse. She also happens to be an author. But um, that was denied, and so she is one of the jurors. What's interesting is just um, how this case was tried. Apparently, Weinstein, during the course of the trial, will remember that we had covered this um, in our last episode, looking really frail um, you know, during the course of the trial. But apparently, from what we can gather here, the roving reporters that we are, the last few weeks of the trial, he appeared to really gain confidence um, and actually was laughing towards the end of the trial. And um, it'll be interesting to see what happens here. There's been some deliberation among pundits that he may actually get off here. Um, there are a number of counts here that are being considered by the jury. He's got five criminal charges against him, including two counts of predatory sexual assault, two counts of rape, and one of criminal sexual assault. And the jury's been instructed to consider the predatory sexual assault charge first. So, Yeah, I think he's going to walk. Um for a bunch of reasons. Donna Rotuno, who is his lead lawyer, who's from Chicago, we've had her on the show. Amazing lawyer. I mean, really has done a great job in this in this trial, I think. Um, the lead witness for the prosecution is an actress named Jessica Mann, who spent the most time on the stand. And, you know, she did not do a good job by many accounts of reporters who were in there. Um, and one of the key things that Rotuno pointed out was all of these emails and texts and messages from her to Weinstein after the alleged rape where, you know, over and over again, she was saying things like Weinstein validated her, that he understands her, was nothing but good to her. These are all quotes that he made her feel so fabulous and beautiful that there was no boundaries in their relationship. So, again, there was an expert testimony from the prosecution that that's not uncommon in abusive relationships, and especially ones where there's a rape victim that you might feel some kinship towards your rapist. But in this case, I do think, based on the accounts of the reporters there and some lawyers, that she doesn't have as much credibility as the defense is portraying um, or as the prosecution is portraying. I think Weinstein's going to walk. Have you guys been following this trial? What do you think is going to happen? I haven't been following it closely, but uh, just generally in that situation, I feel like it's hard to convict a high-profile uh, person. Uh, he's got great, obvious, zealous defense. And then just among other things, the elephant in the room is that it's an actress who is trying to advance her career. Um, and I think it's just a difficult set of facts yeah, to convict. Rick, Rick, I mean, in the Me Too movement, um, most people in these situations who are accused of these kind of crimes – are guilty in the court of public opinion, and then they have to prove their innocence, which is contrary to the legal standard, of course. But do you think that Weinstein will get a fair shake with the jury? Do you think they've already made up their minds based on all the media reports? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I I think he will get a fair shake, but... Uh, People have known for years. The guy's been a scumbag for years. I mean, we know about the fact... You know, it's not news that there's something called the casting couch. It's been out there, um, and it's been a terrible thing for actresses and actors uh, 
to to try to advance their careers. And in this situation, I don't know enough about uh, the specific actress that you were talking about, but she uh, she may have been just saying what needed to be said to the powerful man to try to advance her career. I, I don't know. I, I I think ultimately, I mean, doesn't he have another case? Uh, coming up in Los mm -hmm. Angeles as well. Yep. So this one he may get off on, but I think, and that may be the reason he was on trial anyways for getting off. Well, stay but, tuned, because as you know, <laughs> Sam, we have been starting to uh, give our listeners updates between shows. So as soon as the Weinstein jury comes back, Are you gonna go to we will have, <laughs> I'll be outside the courtroom yeah, yeah, in, in Los LA. Angeles. Yeah, he'll, uh, he'll, he'll fly Tina might take that one. That yeah, I may take that one. Topic two, Michael Avenatti, who I believe was supposed to be on Legal Face Up, but then he blew he us off. No, oh, he was on. Oh, he was we on. We were the he last show he was ever on. Yeah, I think we were the last interview he ever did. I would it was like literally that. two days. I would like that struck from the record then. Anyways, yeah. well... <laughs> <laughs> he might not hear this. Uh, found guilty in an extortion case. Yeah, so I, I believe we interviewed him two days before he was arrested. And so, yes, last we week. We him off. <laughs> the FBI was listening to Legal Faceoff as they are wont to do, and then nabbed him. Yes, so he was found guilty. I believe it was on Valentine's Day. He was found guilty of um, trying to extort Nike for as much as $25 million. Um, his conduct was allegedly relating to information that he had said he had um, by virtue of a client um, that said he had evidence of corruption within Nike relating to high school, high school basketball players. And he was accused and found guilty of misusing that client's information to try to extort $25 million from Nike. So his sentencing is happening in June. He's got two more trials later this year, one in California relating to the many charges against him regarding his business practices, personal finances and taxes, and the second relating to his alleged embezzlement of Stormy Daniels. So he's a busy guy right now with all the wrong things. Yeah, tough times for Avenatti. I mean, one interesting take has been, you know, the backlash against the media for giving him such a forum over the last year or two in terms of his criticism of Trump. Um, you know, a lot of media outlets have been criticized for basically making him a hero. And now a lot of them are trying to walk that back now that he's been convicted. But were we one of those media outlets, Rich? Well, we gave him we gave him uh, some time, but we give on legal face off time to people on all sides of the political and legal spectrum. I think, uh, guys, what do you think of Ivanity? Was it just a case of someone maybe believing their own hype too much? And because you know, at the end of the day. His defense was that this was just a normal legal transaction and he was threatening them but not extorting them. And that's a matter of degree sometimes in, 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 in the law. But what are your thoughts Didn't on that? Didn't Blagojevich say that same exactly, thing? It was just right? a normal <laughs> exactly. thing. Norm, um, normal horse trading. I'm not in the legal business in the law, but uh, wasn't he always kind of uh, seen as uh, kind of a shady, shady character to begin with? So I'm not surprised that this happened and that he got caught. Yeah, and you know, earlier on in the show we had a former federal prosecutor and you know Mario these cases are juicy, right? I mean, federal prosecutors, the FBI, um the United States Justice uh, Department of Justice, you know, they have agendas too and they want to go after high-profile people and someone who is literally on every cable show you know, hour after hour, day after day during the last year and a half, those are big targets. And that's who the FBI and the Department of Justice are going to go after, just like Blagojevich. So, 
You might not like that. You might think that justice should be equally applied to all. But the reality is, you know, these are high profile targets. Yep. The bigger the pinata, the more candy they hold. So uh, good quote right there. (laughs) (laughs) Can I use that one? (laughs) If he gets the 20 years maximum, is is Donald Trump going to. uh, Yeah, could be. Probably not. Going to try to get him and his buddy uh, Oliver Stone or Oliver Stone. (laughs) Roger Roger Stone. Stone. Yeah, I don't think Trump will be pardoning uh, Avenatti yeah, too quickly. Exactly. You never know. You never really know. Topic you don't number three. Ever know. Is it? Isn't that true, Sam? This went viral. This is the American Airlines passenger who had her seat punched yeah. repeatedly. Well, guess what? Now she's ready to pick another fight. This time, she's suing American Airlines. Well, thank God, because like we say on the show, every time there is uh, one of these viral videos or something. Uh, you know, that gains a lot of attention. There will be a lawsuit. You can guarantee that they will hire a lawyer and there'll be a lawsuit, uh, meritorious or not. And thank God for that, because, you know, otherwise we'd be talking about Harvey Weinstein and Bill Cosby forever. Yep. So, um, yeah, we all saw the video. This was the woman on the American Airlines flight who uh, leaned her chair back. Right. And the guy behind her who couldn't lean his chair back, couldn't recline his chair, started tapping on her the back of her seat and banging it throughout throughout the whole flight. She later claimed that she had some uh, back issues as as a result. And now she is threatening American Airlines with a defamation lawsuit because American told TMZ that the whole incident started when she reclined her seat and knocked over the passenger's uh, drink. She says that never happened. So now she is claiming uh, that her, you know, she's alleging a, a defamation and we'll, we'll sue Americans. So more so than the merits of the lawsuit, I just got to ask, Tina, recline or no recline on the airline? Are you a recline person? It depends on what ah, part of the depends. plane I'm on. <laughs> what is it because if I'm on? because if I'm somewhere like if I'm in coach, I tend not to recline because I just worry Martini about the person. Never flies I'm... coach. Who are we kidding, Sam? <laughs> <laughs> She's never seen a coach seat in her life. The only time I don't recline ago. is when you and I fly to Vegas on Spirit <laughs> because, <laughs> because we six a.m. We can't yeah. recline. Uh, they take that option away from us. I'm six two. I need as much room as possible. So you're a recliner. I recline. Do you ask permission before you no, recline. No, I just do it, guys. Yeah, I always recline when I always recline. To. I don't recline because I'm a big guy and I don't want people to recline onto me. This is fascinating. We also so he's we also got the golden rule. No, I'm a he uses the golden rule when he's rec- when he's not reclining. It's all about the golden yeah, rule. I'm well, yeah, I wrote right here. What did I write? Rudeness. <laughs> I think they're both rude. You would not. I like, think if there I was a in solution. Front of you, I'd, I'd recline and then throw my hood up. And back <laughs> oh, asleep. I'd take a video of you and I'd like you. There's a solution. There's a solution. Yes. The airlines just get rid of the recline option. Spirit Airlines. Airlines. Spirit Airlines. Do everyone yeah. equal. Do it. No, Spirit, Frontier. Doesn't, Spirit doesn't recline, and I think it's mandatory that their flight attendant bashes you with a suitcase in the head if you're in the aisle. Yes. That's part least. of Well, the, I pay extra for that. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the Spirit experience. What about the defamation claim? I mean, is she, the, the, the basis of her lawsuit will be defamation uh, over this American Airlines story that she was at fault. I mean, come on. If you're on the jury, do you buy any of that? Do you buy that she was defamed because of this? If, if anything, she's gaining some notoriety from, from this incident, right? Yeah, this incident didn't destroy her reputation by any means. I, right. didn't, I didn't know who she was before this, so... She didn't have much of a reputation. She's in the last, <laughs> the last two, the last two rows of the plane. I got a question about a, uh, a common legal face-off guest. What about uh, the serial stowaway? Do you think she reclines when she's on the plane? What's her name? 
Who? You know, the, the serial, serial stowaway. stowaway. We haven't heard about her for yeah, a while. The, one, the woman who jumps on every plane and she, you know, stows away from O'Hare. I wonder if she reclines. I doubt she we'll reclines. Have to, we'll have to have her on to ask her I think that she question. probably rolls up into a ball or something. Probably. Well, you have to blend in somehow. Uh, <laughs> TheHill.com with this story. George Zimmerman, you know that name, the Trayvon Martin case. He is now suing Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg. For over, defamation. Over, guess what? More defamation. <laughs> defamation. Wow. Yeah. Uh, George Zimmerman, of course, is the former Florida neighborhood watchman who was acquitted a few years ago of shooting and killing 17-year-old Trayvon Martin. Um, who, you know, he, he claimed uh, he, that he stood his ground, availing himself of that Florida law. Well, now, as you mentioned, he is suing two Democrat presidential candidates, Elizabeth Warren and Pete Buttigieg, for defamation. Uh, this results from two separate tweets that both Warren and Buttigieg, Buttigieg, that's the right way to say it, isn't it? Yes, it is. Mayor Pete. Mayor Pete. Uh, they tweeted talking about... Um, Trayvon Martin's family, and they said we need to end gun violence and racism, basically saying that he was racist for shooting Trayvon Martin. Uh, Pete, Pete Buttigieg said something similar. Uh, he is seeking $265 million in damages. So a lot of people say, George Zimmerman, just go away. You're lucky to be not, you're lucky that you're not spending the rest of your life in prison for killing Trayvon Martin, yet he still continues to be in the news and filing high-profile lawsuits against Democratic presidential candidates. Tina Zimmerman, thoughts? BS. Calling BS on it. <laughs> I mean, I just, I, I mean, defamation is a tough thing to prove, and I think that in this instance, he's just trying to get a lot of money, get a lot of notoriety, and I, I, th I think it's nonsense. They did name him in the tweets. Guys, they just mentioned that Trayvon Martin was shot um, because of racism. So do you think there's any merit to this defamation lawsuit? I don't see the damages in general. I just don't. Um, yeah, you're probably not going to. I mean, Zimmerman can argue that, well, you know, my uh, economic lot is um, damaged because I can't get a job. Is anyone really hiring George Zimmerman <laughs> anyway? Is there a big demand for... You yeah. know, guys who got off from the stand your ground rule in, in Florida? Babysitters? No? No, no babysitters are going to hire not. George probably Zimmerman? Mm. Tough call. So, wait, he wants how much money? It'll be 265 American dollars. For two tweets. Million so he dollars. wants $130. Well, after I. 100, after the, million, 130 uh, million. million to after I found out we'd be talking about this story, I just went through Twitter to see what other people. Said that's you know going to be the twenty fifth birthday. And I saw collect. no less than ten or fifteen people just, and that was just a quick count, who were saying something similar. Oh, I thought you were going to say. Are they going to be suing? Is he going to be suing them as well? I thought you were going to say that you were hoping to find people twinning against you, so you could file defamation. Oh well, that's a common occurrence. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where do you where do you narrow the, the uh, scope of defendants against George Zimmerman? How many people have tweeted negative yeah. things about him? Exactly. This just sounds like he's looking Other for publicity NRA. and going after someone who's high profile. And they right. didn't even use his name. Which right. They didn't. It's fascinating. Uh, Malcolm X, back in the news, and uh, documentary, Who Killed Malcolm X? New York Times has been all, with, all over this coverage. The prosecutors are now considering reviewing convictions in Malcolm X's murder. This is wild to me. Yes. So Malcolm X was murdered back in 1965 when he was in the middle of giving a speech in the Audubon Ballroom in New York. His wife and children were present 
when that happened. And in 1966, three men were convicted of his murder. All of them were members of the Nation of Islam, which um, Malcolm X had used to be a part of and then had recently, before he, he was killed, had broken with the Nation of Islam. Um, so this documentary is called into question whether two of the three who were convicted actually could have even been there to commit the murder. It looks like one of them actually admitted to committing the murder and the other two had alibis, one of whom died over 10 years ago and the other who was paroled in 1985 and who is now trying to clear his name. So it's, it's, it's a very interesting case. It'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. And just the fact that it's a documentary that has been bringing this back to light and calling into question um, a, a case and a decision that is this old, um, we find fascinating here at Legal Face Power Off. of documentaries, right? We've yes. seen it with Making a Murderer. We've seen it with um, R. Kelly, that cases that are years and years old and people are you know in jail. Um, those charges can be overturned from... Just the media. Um, it shows you how powerful documentaries uh, can be and how popular they are now because of things like this. Fellas, what do you think? Well, I think if whenever new information comes up and, and it's credible information, they should look into it. You know, I don't know enough about this. And if this is credible, I know the Innocence Project is working with the one the one gentleman. And, uh, and, and I know William Kunstler was involved with another one earlier, but he couldn't get it called. But uh, if you've, you've got new credible information and some of these uh, these podcasts and documentaries, they're pretty, pretty dogged journalists. And they, mm-hmm. I would I would trust they, they probably have some credible information. Mario. I just think it's going to be a difficult burden to overturn something because that the case is so old. Uh, this is before really DNA was preserved, fingerprints. Uh, to, you know, today's technology, people are tracked with their cell phones. There's cameras all over the place. There's just so many more ways to weapons for the defendant today that didn't exist in 1965. And I just I find it hard to. Uh, Hard to believe the defendant's going to be successful. Good Denzel role, Sam. <laughs> Malcolm X, we didn't land on Plymouth Rock. Plymouth Rock landed on us. Well, it, also in 1965, I mean, just be, this is a high-profile case. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a high, you know. Uh, I know of in, in the community I grew up in, there was a, a little girl murdered that same year. It's still unsolved. So is she ever going to and her family ever going to get the justice that perhaps, Yeah. you know. I thought you were going to do another impersonation. I was going to do some more Denzel. I was going to bring up my training, training day. day. Training That's day. why I jumped in. <laughs> Crimson I had to Tide. End Crimson Tide's a great underrated Denzel movie. Remember, the Titans good, too. Yeah. Last year, NBA Finals, Raptors are playing the Warriors, and one executive in the Raptors' front office was trying to get his way onto the floor. He was stopped by a sheriff's deputy, and then the executive allegedly shoved said deputy, and now the executive is being sued. Yeah, Masai Ujiri, who is the GM of the team, who's one of the most sought-after GMs. There's talk of him uh, taking the Knicks organization over. Um, you know, from his perspective, he says he couldn't enjoy the celebration because he was shoved by a sheriff's deputy. And this um, is in Oakland. This was a road game for the Raptors yeah, when Oakland. they won. And, uh, you know, there's some back and forth about who shoved who, but... Uh, he was not wearing his credentials, goes the allegation, and he was stopped from entering the floor for the celebration. And either he shoved the sheriff's deputy or vice versa. And now they are suing both him individually 
and the Toronto Raptors and their parent company, Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, for assault, battery, intentional affliction of emotional distress and negligence. The team, of course, um, denies it and says we are disappointed that he elected to take this path. And they called his claims baseless and without merit. Um, there has also been some racial components to this because Masai Ujiri is an African-American, in fact, from Africa. And he alleged that maybe, um, you know, he was not allowed to enter the court because he was African-American. And, you know, even though, you know, he's been around the NBA for years. So I thought it was an interesting story in the wake of the All-Star game uh, this week that the most high profile uh, GM in the league is being sued. Tina, any thoughts on this case? Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting. I, I think that there seems to be a disconnect between the two sides in terms of the version of what really happened. Um, I, I do think it's just another case, though, of where the allegations are really a bit over the top from what I can gather. Yeah, there's actually video and images um, that show Ujiri did have credentials on him and was holding them. Um you know, listen, in the, in the heat of the NBA Finals victory, lots of things could happen. And, uh, you know, we've seen examples on this show on both sides of the coin in terms of police action, some that have been out of line and some that have been, you know, maybe described the wrong way. But what are your thoughts on this case, guys? What would a reasonable security person do when somebody shows you their lanyard? Let him on the court, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he got one of those theory, from somewhere. That's what's supposed to happen, <laughs> yeah. right? Sam, tell us about you've been on, you know, in hundreds of these scenarios. How hectic does it get on the floor? And is it understandable that a sheriff's deputy might, you know, react uh, not the right way? Might not even have seen the credentials and might have wanted to err on the side of, you know, protecting the players because obviously there's people coming from all sides when there's a team celebrating on the court or on the field or whatever. Right, because if the deputy doesn't stop this man, who may be or may not be an executive, and this guy goes on and does something stupid to one of the players, then he is responsible for whatever happens there. Bedlam down there, right? I get get his point, but USA Today is saying that he did have credentials on and he was holding them in his hand. Yeah. So you do, and Rick knows this too, covering sports, you have to have not only the credential, but the land you're supposed to be around your neck and the credential is supposed to be visible. Otherwise, you're not actually supposed to be anywhere near the playing field or the court. I covered the Bulls during the heyday in the 90s and was there for, for final games. And you have your lanyards on. They are big lanyards. It's clear. It's wear. clear it's if clear you should be there If or you not. should be there. Yeah. Exactly. Um, what, what jumped out on, uh, in this story to me is that... Um, that it sounded like a criminal case to me. If he, if 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 the general manager did indeed push the security, why is he not being, why is he not being prosecuted? Yeah, yeah for sure. Final topic here on legal grab bag: singing lawyers. I'm just going to read what Emily wrote on the rundown. Singing lawyers. Two Texas lawyers are practicing their marketing through song. Yes, I think that we should start singing LFO and not. And I just like to sing, as sing. you know. Yeah. <laughs> Not good at it. So, um, Will Hudson and Chris Harris are two lawyers in Waco, Texas. Uh, their firm is Hudson and Harris, and what they are known for is advertising themselves through song. Um, I've actually watched a number of their videos on YouTube. I'd have to say the best song of all is Don't Eat Your Weed, where they provide advice to people about what to do in to the event. By. You've got weed on you, and a cop comes by. 
Um, they also have the great hits, Please Shut Up, and What Part of Any Don't You Understand. Um, I think these lyrics are hilarious. Um, they include such wonderful, thought-provoking topics and, and, and lyrics such as, Tampering with evidence doesn't make any sense. Let the cops find your weed. As the officer approaches, you try to eat your roaches and you throw your weed out the door. <laughs> I mean, these are words to live by. So I have to hand it to these guys for their creativity. And I'm wondering, Rich, if there's a recipe for success for us here. I think more singing is good. I usually only sing when I've had some alcohol in me, so I'm not a very good singer. But, yeah, listen, any way to get the message out, right, in this crowded marketplace, the crowded legal marketplace, got to distinguish yourself. And these guys at least got the coveted seventh slot in the legal grab bag. So <laughs> they've made it. Something's working, right? It's usually the big comedy spot on the grab bag. Guys? Are you entertained by singing lawyers? I thought some of the would videos they make it were at Zanies, they, would, they would not make it at Zanies, but Zanies. I, would, <laughs> I would encourage them to continue working, um, and I would tell them various open mics they could go to. Yes. But they should have done one thing, is you don't push a security guard. Maybe that's, that's yeah, There you something. go. Yeah. So. Callback. Uh, Mario, do you ever sing uh, in your legal practice? How's uh, your voice? You know, it, it needs work, yeah. just like everything else. Uh -huh. It's practice, man. You got to get it polished. But I have seen uh, attorneys, uh, another group of attorneys that work with the California Innocence Project, and they have a band that's called Exonerate. Wow. And all of their songs are about justice and freedom. Um, and it's actually really cool because they cater their lyrics to what they do every day. Are they original songs or they're like other, you know, covers of songs? I think songs they throw that, in Bob Marley covers, yeah. but they also... Gotta go yeah, Marley. Yeah, Bob. <laughs> the most obvious choice. Just don't eat your talking. weed and sing Bob Marley. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it all connects. Talking freedom, it's gotta be Marley. Or uh, George Michael, you know, did a good song about freedom. I was gonna sing, I've got... Two tickets. Rest in peace, Eddie. The late great Eddie Money. You know, it said there were two people that sang, not right. one, Rich. You just totally uh, hung me up to drive So uh, we got a couple minutes. I was, uh, Steve, uh, Steve, Rick, I was looking at your bio. Indiana University, of course, right? Yes. Did you see Bobby Knight's uh, triumphal return last week? His I first did. time back in Bloomington. And I, was, I was actually at the game where he threw the chair. Really? I was. I was. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Which time? Did you cover it or you were a student there? I was a student there wow. at the time. Yeah. So was uh, he throwing it at you or? <laughs> he was not. He no. threw it across the yes, court against Purdue when Steve Reed was on the line. Yeah. Um, it, it was an interesting time to be uh, at Indiana. He, the whole basketball universe kind of kind of was around that, and looking now, towards that way. And all is forgiven. He's back. Did anybody file a lawsuit when he threw the chair? Sure. Think about today's time. Today for sure. Well, he did say, I think at the time that he said he saw an older woman on the other side who needed a chair. So he oh, thought he would. A gentleman and a scholar. Well, yeah. you know, Sam, you know that Bobby Knight was a finalist for a renegade show in Vegas. Did, did you know that? I did not know that. Yeah. But then um, we had some, you know, complications. He's an older gentleman, of course, now. So him doing uh, four nights a week at a Vegas show would have been a little bit complicated. But yeah, it was interesting to see him back and embraced. I mean, people were going crazy. But Oh, they've always loved him there. I did a public relations project when I was down there saying that he was bad for the university from a branding point of view. I got booed in the yeah. middle of a class. Well, I just recently watched the 30 for 30, like in the last couple months about his last days there. It's called The Last Days of Night. It's the whole story about his uh, departure there and the allegations of... Uh, choking the... It was, uh, who the was player it? on uh, his team. Neil Reed. You said Neil Reed. No, uh, Steve Reed was the Purdue oh, player. It was, it was Neil something. Yeah, I can't remember his name. Well, he now, denied yeah. choking him, and then they released a video. Anyway. <laughs> I am choking Neil. 
Bobby Knight would not be uh, he would not be very good in today's college no, basketball yeah. game. Tina, can you imagine representing a coach who strangled players and threw chairs at fans? And I think I'd have a hard time with that. <laughs> and didn't he get out of Puerto Rico by the skin of his teeth during the Pan Am games as well? Yeah, that's right. Be great for legal face-off, though. He'd be outstanding. He's only 79 years young. You made it sound like he was a fossil. I mean, he's... You know. He looks, though... I mean, when he sh- when he showed up last week, he looked noticeably older than when he uh, when he was coaching. And he looked back then old. I mean, he... Well, he, he looked old to yeah. me back then. He's got a guy who came out of the womb with gray hair and <laughs> red sweater, you know, so... Great nickname, too. The General. Yeah. That's Bobby Knight's nickname. Not as good as the uh, the current General, though. Love those commercials. <laughs> right? right? General and Shaq. Not we're not sponsored by the general, by the way. So they're not, getting free advertising on the world's number one legal podcast, Legal Face Off. Not yet, not anytime soon. Rick, Mario, thank you both for coming. Thank in. you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks to Ben for Rich and Tina. I'm Sam. We'll talk to you next time on Legal Face Off. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget.